Welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, perhaps in the last century or so, no food toxicosis incident has touched more hearts, perhaps, than the Minamata incident in Japan. This particular incident involved mercury uh, in the human food chain, the title of our uh, today's lecture. Uh, it involved mercury in an extraordinarily dramatic, multi-generational impact uh, that uh, directly affected uh, well over 10,000 uh, Japanese citizens. Uh, unfortunately, before that time, we uh, didn't have uh, the necessary knowledge in terms of the uh, biogeochemistry of mercury and the potential food chain effects of mercury, mercury released in this particular case from an industrial process contaminating local food systems. This is a, a heart-wrenching uh, rendition of uh, food toxicosis in the dramatic impacts of human suffering, suffering uh, associated with a contaminant. It's an unfortunate part of our human history. But today what we're going to do is try to explore the whole concept of mercury and the human food chain and bring you up to speed a little bit with the current regulatory and food safety status. Our learning objectives here today, we're going to try to explore the background and some of the history of mercury, a very interesting element. We'll try to understand it in an environmental biogeochemistry context. How does mercury cycle through the environment? How does it work its way up through the food chain? As I said, we're going to try to look at mercury from all different points of view in terms of its environmental biogeochemistry. One of the most important parts is the toxicity profile of methylmercury, the most toxic uh, member of the biogeochemical cycle of mercury. We're going to use the Minamata incident and its role in understanding the risk of mercury in terms of a historical context of some of the clinical disease manifestations of mercury toxicosis, what happens when things go terribly, terribly wrong in terms of the relationship of industry and a local community's food system. We'll try as well to review some current research. Uh, this is research that's happened in the past 10 years or so, looking at the relationship between mercury and specifically methylmercury in the food system and child development. We'll try to as well understand some of the current regulatory findings, uh, the upshot, if you will, in terms of mercury in its environment and how we use that information to manage mercury in the food chain. Well, mercury's history is quite uh, colorful, to say the least. In fact, it is the red color of many uh, old uh, and ancient manuscripts and paintings. Uh, mercury sulfide, the sulfide is being extremely stable and in mineral form as cinnabar or vermilion, is uh, the native mercury found in nature, the red rocks, if you will. When you see an ancient manuscript that's uh, got colorful illuminations in it, uh, the reds are typically uh, cinnabar or mercury sulfide. The ancients used to find a pretty red rock, grind it up with uh, an oil base, and that became a paint or an ink. In terms of its history, there was ancient mining uh, of mercury and its ores in Spain, Italy, and China. It was found in 1500 BC in Egyptian tombs. It was even recognized in antiquity that working the mines associated with mercury, uh, if not a death sentence, it sure was uh, not a good livelihood. 
In terms of native mercury, it is occasionally found uh, in nature, Argentum vivum. Uh, it's also found in terms of early alchemy as uh, from condensed heating vapor of uh, cinnabar. And this was referred to as water silver in the Greek or hydrogyrum. In terms of the role of alchemy in the utilization of mercury, it was pretty substantial. Uh, one of the earliest Latin alchemy texts, uh, the Turba Philosophorum, or Assembly of the Alchemical Philosophers, dates to the 12th century. Uh, in that particular document, the quotes are, in the estimation of all sages, mercury is the first principle of all metals. As flesh is generated from coagulated blood, so gold is generated uh, out of coagulated mercury. And so this is the relationship that you probably have read of in terms of alchemy and mercury to gold. In terms of the global cycle of mercury, we've understood this through a lot of environmental chemistry and toxicology analyses research uh, over the past 50 years. Uh, this cartoon gives you an idea of the uh, cycling. Uh, we start off with the degassing from, of mercury from uh, soil, rocks, and surface water. Mercury is uh, a natural element. It's in uh, many rock formations in trace amounts or in some uh, ore deposits in fairly high concentrations uh, approaching percent levels. Uh, that degassing uh, as well as emissions from volcanic uh, or from human activities such as burning fossil fuels, burning uh, coal for example, uh, starts a volatilization cycle. It moves in gaseous form uh, through the atmosphere. Um, there can be uh, ionization having to do with photochemical effects and interaction with uh, uh, cloud vapor. There is a deposition then in terms of mercury on land and surface waters, and this transboundary transport is part of the problem in terms of worldwide deposition of mercury from one source uh, to perhaps lands distant, and it's a concern in terms of the U.S. Uh, monitoring of our own ecosphere. Uh, what happens uh, in soil and water is that this uh, mercury gets converted uh, into soluble mercury sulfides. Some of these uh, mercury uh, salts and chemicals can actually be incorporated into microbial flora and fauna. Uh, what happens is uh, there is a bioalkylation as microbes and fungi and various uh, life forms detoxify mercury. They convert it uh, to methylmercury forms. Uh, there can be, at that point in time, an atmospheric uh, cycling of methylmercury because it is a volatile alkylated heavy metal. In terms of the aquatic mercury cycle, what happens is uh, we find that the relatively harmless uh, salts of mercury in its elemental divalent or particulate forms are actually uh, converted to methylmercury CH3HG+. And that becomes uh, the major uh, potential for toxicity. Methylmercury is a byproduct of the metabolic processes uh, of sulfate-reducing bacteria, or SRBs, uh, that use sulfur, uh, sulfate as a terminal electron acceptor in their anaerobic uh, respiratory process. It's not known exactly how inorganic mercury is converted into organic mercury in the process, but uh, there's been a lot of research done to try to understand exactly what 
happens in terms of this particular chemical. Once it's in the methylmercury form, uh, it is a uh, chemical that uh, uh, is bioaccumulated because it does have lipophilicity. Uh, so it's bioaccumulated in the normal progression of bioaccumulation and potential biomagnification in aquatic ecosystems. In the modern environment, we find that about 70% of the mercury uh, comes from anthropogenic sources, and these include metal mining and smelting, smelting being the process of making an element from a raw ore, a raw ore that's typically an oxide or a sulfide, for example. Uh, we find that uh, incineration processes, not only uh, um, incineration or combustion of coal, but uh, incineration of municipal and medical waste uh, materials. Uh, Coal-fired power plants and cement manufacturing uh, are both uh, major vectors in terms of release of atmospheric mercury. Um, volcanic eruption and just mining activities in terms of turning over the soil do release any volatile uh, uh, mercury residues. Uh, with industrialization has come an enhanced release of mercury. It's been estimated that there has been a threefold increase in uh, environmentally available mercury due to industrialization. Because mercury is what's referred to as a PBT, it is persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. It's of great concern. Uh, there's about uh, uh, 10 to 12 uh, chemicals that carry the label of persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic in terms of EPA uh, recognition. Uh, mercury is one of the most toxic, uh, most concerned uh, elements on that particular list. Now we've used mercury uh, for uh, several centuries in many industrial processes. It has a unique, it's a liquid metal, so it conducts electricity, and we've used that in its simplest form as elemental mercury uh, to measure temperature and pressure. We've all seen, perhaps, uh, in our laboratory activities, uh, mercury barometers or mercury thermometers. Uh, these days, the use of mercury in common household thermometers is not encouraged because of its potential release. Uh, when I was growing up, mercury in thermometers was a relatively common uh, occurrence. Uh, mercury acts as a biocide. Uh, that should give us a hint that it's got potential toxic properties. Uh, phenylmercurics are uh, very potent uh, biocides that have been used for various applications. Uh, it's a preservative and disinfectant, and it's been used in industrial processes to catalyze various uh, chemical uh, reactions. Uh, you'll find it in uh, lighted athletic shoes running down the street in scientific apparatus and some batteries various uh, old latex and oil-based paints. There's been uh, several documented case studies of individuals, uh, house painters, uh, that have become intoxicated from mercury uh, from just using just the, uh, the uh, preservatives, mercury-based preservatives that uh, used to be uh, used in house paint actually up until relatively recently. Uh, there was a strong push to pull the mercury out. Um, the idea was Latex is a protein. It has the potential to have mold growth. The mercury was put in these paints to inhibit the growth of uh, microbial and mold growth. Um, there's various pesticides and solvents uh, that have been used with mercury. There's dyes and pigments. You'll see it in the arts as a red pigment, typically. 
Uh, it has had active use in, in uh, medicine as a pharmaceutical. Uh, there are various uh, mercury uh, compounds used in a wide variety of applications. One of the most uh, contentious uses is uh, its use as a preservative in most, if not all, of the vaccines uh, that are currently administered. The idea being that this is an intravenous injection of a, a relatively trace amount. Unfortunately, the use of this particular uh, thimerosal cell um, uh, preservative uh, has not found uh, a suitable replacement in terms of it trying to uh, preserve the shelf-stable nature of uh, vaccines. In terms of mercury's history, we see it uh, out and about in terms of uh, our intersection and examination of history. Uh, you recall from your reading of uh, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter, um, the Mad Hatter was a, a social term, uh, and it had a lot to do with the fact that when beaver pelts uh, were used in 19th century, uh, the actual uh, working of the pelts in terms of making them into hats used a mercury preservative. Uh, people that worked in these shops and factories making uh, these hats uh, would have mercury toxicosis. Uh, they would find uh, uh, them to be irritable uh, uh, at, at least in terms of the neurotoxic impacts of the mercury and mercuric nitrate that they were exposed to. In terms of its use as a medicine, uh, in the 19th century there was uh, a substantial amount of uh, heavy metal use as uh, medicinals for various applications. Uh, one of those applications was the treatment of syphilis. There were severe side effects and many deaths associated with that. Um, they have been used uh, as uh, um, diuretics, anti-invectives, uh, laxatives, uh, and eye and skin treatments. When I was growing up, uh, there was an iodine solution called mercurochrome uh, that uh, was available over the counter. Um, there was a mercury compound in there. Uh, as uh, antimicrobiocidal um, that was used to directly put on cuts and scrapes in the same way that perhaps uh, students of this class use uh, a compound like Neosporin or some uh, antibiotic cream. Uh, mercurochrome was something that uh, we grew up with. There's been some speculation in terms of the role of mercury toxicity in the medicines during the Lewis and Clark expedition 200 years ago. In fact, uh, Meriwether Lewis uh, did commit suicide uh, following a bout of uh, manic depression. Uh, people have looked back at the amounts of mercury uh, in terms of the journals of uh, Lewis and Clark, the amount that was on the trip and the amount that was uh, taken as uh, a medicine because of all of the gastrointestinal upsets associated with their journey. Uh, there is some uh, uh, forensic analysis suggesting that uh, indeed uh, Meriwether Lewis actually uh, uh, succumbed to mercury toxicosis. Uh, mercury has, a, in terms of its target organ toxicology, it's nephrotoxic. It exerts its principal uh, nephrotoxic effect on the membrane of the proximal tubule. Uh, it'll bind to the sulfhydryl groups uh, on membrane proteins, uh, so it creates a, uh, a folded or a uh, coagulated protein. 
Uh, it acts as a diuretic uh, in terms of uh, inhibiting sodium reabsorption uh, in the tubules. In uh, recent history, in the 1920s to 1960s, organomercurials were used clinically as diuretics uh, to uh, enhance uh, uh, fluid uh, release uh, because sodium was not reabsorbed. Currently, there's still uh, some compounds like Marsalil, which is a C13H17 mercury nitrate compound, uh, which is used in a clinical setting as a diuretic. The prime uh, mode of toxicosis associated with mercury is the neurotoxicity of methylmercury. All forms of mercury are neurotoxic, but methylmercury is regarded as highly neurotoxic. Uh, the levels of methylmercury are too low to show uh, that are too low to show a postnatal effect uh, can become uh, neurotoxic to a developing fetus. In terms of uh, our exposure, the principal exposure in the human diet to methylmercury is through fish consumption, although we find it also in uh, various sea mammals and shellfish. Uh, the major source of methylmercury in the aquatic environment is atmospheric deposition of mercury uh, onto the surfaces, and then it is biomethylated again by microorganisms and magnified up the food chain. The U.S. Uh, uh, concentrations of most of the fish caught in regional waters, and this has a lot to do with our restrictions on uh, discharging of mercury into natural waters. Typically, it's less than about a half of a milligram per kilogram or a part per, half of a part per million. Uh, some species of fish, and typically the uh, fish that are at the top of the aquatic food chain, such as tuna, shark, and swordfish, uh, uh, appear to have levels that are greater than a part per million. So there is a bioaccumulation and a bioconcentration. Because of the potential for neurotoxicity and uh, impact on developing uh, fetuses, pregnant women are always advised not to eat the uh, larger predatory fish, such as tuna, shark, and swordfish, uh, while they are pregnant. Methylmercury exposure to infants and children, it can happen uh, via uh, in utero, but also uh, exposure due to breastfeeding and from consumption of fish and fish products, pri primarily in terms of infant and child exposure. In terms of methylmercury poisoning incidents, there's been a several that have highlighted, highlighted the uh, potential toxicity of this particular form of mercury. In the late 1950s, what happened was uh, there was uh, a, an incident in Minamata and uh, Niigata, Japan. There were over 21,000 individuals who filed claims under poisoning because of this. We're going to uh, examine the Minamata incident in detail in this lecture. In 1971 and 1972, there was a poisoning outbreak in Iraq that resulted from the consumption of grain that was uh, uh, used in bread making. This grain had been actually treated as seed grain with a uh, methylmercury fungicide. Uh, about 6,500 individuals were affected. About 440 of those actually uh, died. Now, recently, we've kind of come full circle in the whole Minamata incident. Uh, this is a uh, October 15, 2004 
Associated Press report. Uh, I won't read it here uh, to you. I'm putting it in the uh, case file just uh, so that the students will have an idea of the current events associated with Minamata and how an event in the 1950s is somewhat still uh, active in terms of the cycle of the potential, um, the tragic uh, human impact of this uh, toxicosis. Uh, in essence, uh, this was an announcement of the uh, final settlement of the Japanese government uh, to the victims of Minamata disease. Minamata disease and the whole incident in terms of uh, uh, Minamata happened at a time uh, when uh, individuals were, I guess, in the post-World War II days, post-industrialization uh, in the run-up to uh, World War II and the time afterwards, when uh, people were just becoming a little bit more linked to their environment and the potential impacts of many of our industrial processes on the environment. Uh, significant among these, uh, in the same way Rachel Carson identified many of the concerns of agricultural chemical use, uh, there was W. Eugene Smith, a photojournalist that actually went to Japan to document some of the horrors associated with Minamata disease. Uh, this photojournalist in his book, uh, Minamata Life, Sacred and Profane, uh, essentially uh, documented the pain, suffering, and anguish of the local communities. Um, his photos uh, still to this day uh, document the tremendous human pain and suffering uh, associated with this incident. Uh, out of respect for the individuals, and now that uh, some of the Minamata sufferers have actually uh, suggested that uh, there have been perhaps a, a, a desensitization of individuals uh, f and the linkage between the individual pain. Uh, I've chosen in terms of the lecture not to show any of uh, W. Gene Smith's uh, pictures, uh, but this is a picture of him with a classic uh, Tomoko in her bath uh, photo uh, in the background that is sufficiently blurred out. Now, Minamata disease, uh, we can define that as a neurological disorder caused by ingestion of large quantities of fish or shellfish that was contaminated with methylmercury. And this was uh, a result of the industrial effluence in Minamata Bay and uh, near a river in Niigata, Japan. What we can learn if we take a look at this before we talk about this specific case is uh, for the first time in Minamata, uh, we were exposed to the impact of mercury pollution and how this creates a serious hazard for humans. Uh, the health and environment considerations must be integrated in the process of economic and industrial uh, development from an very, very early stage this aspect of the relationship of a community to the industries that the community survives on is a part of the learning curve uh, that we had with uh, the Minamata incident. Now I've given on the next two slides a chronology related to Minamata disease. First started in terms of 1956, there was reports of a disease uh, to the public health authorities uh, in Japan. Uh, there was, uh, in, over the next uh, 10 or 12 years, an analysis, a research, if you will, uh, trying to link what this disease and what the cause of this new disease was. 
At the time, we just didn't know uh, the impacts of mercury, although early on there was some suspicions that it was a foodborne illness. It took about 10 years for the companies involved with the discharge to actually change the, their particular process. It was an acetaldehyde uh, manufacturing process that used uh, um, mercury as a catalyst. Um, this uh, gives you a continuation of the chronology up through the 70s in terms of some of the court actions of the individuals looking for economic relief uh, from their pain and suffering. Uh, finally, in 1990, uh, they uh, actually actually started in 1976 the dredging of the sediment, uh, and they finally finished it in 1990. So it took well over a decade to be able to remove the source of the toxicosis from this particular area. Now, when this first happened, uh, there was uh, the link between dose response or cause and effect was not clear. Uh, the disease that was uh, prevalent uh, uh, at the time that caused similar neurotoxic syndromes was encephalitis, uh, perhaps followed by chemical intoxication. Uh, it became clear that the disease manifested by the Minamata inhabitants uh, was different. Uh, there was some assumption that there was chemical poisoning occurring. And it had a lot to do with the families, the households, uh, the men and women in the houses uh, that became sick, uh, but not only the individuals uh, eating from the table, but the pets that were fed scraps started exhibiting the same sort of neurotoxic uh, signs and symptoms. And so this uh, linkage between pet food and human food uh, gave us a little bit of the cause and effect in terms of something in the food, something in the diet, in the human food chain in this area uh, was linked to this particular disease. Taking into consideration all of the uh, distribution and the uh, chronological uh, organization of the victims, it was surmised that the waste discharge of two industrial plants uh, were the uh, cause of the uh, particular disease manifestation. At the beginning, uh, because it was a chemical plant, uh, mercury uh, was not necessarily uh, uh, considered as the top, the top toxin of, of choice in terms of cause and effect. Uh, there are many other chemicals because of the manufacturing processes in these plants. Uh, this peculiar disease uh, actually uh, was something that was new in terms of seeing high-dose methylmercury in uh, a human population. This gives you a, a, an idea of the methylmercury and how it's used, uh, how mercury is used in acetaldehyde manufacturing. Um, this particular process in the plant, uh, this is uh, from some of the Japanese Ministry of the Environment documents uh, from a decade or two ago. Here's the plant uh, discharging mercury compounds and it gets bioaccumulated up the food chain uh, and uh, then you've got human consumption on this and in terms of the stick figures from this particular representation. Now, our formal clinical knowledge was about mercury in industrial settings, not methylmercury. Methylmercury is a biotransformed form of mercury. It's bioalkylated, uh, and uh, environmental toxicologists and biologists suspect that uh, microbes and animals biomethylate as a detoxification or a biotransformation of the toxic properties of, uh, of this particular heavy metal. It took about 12 years uh, for an official conclusion to come out that uh, it was methylmercury for the Minamata disease outbreak. 
Um, the scientific knowledge at that point in time uh, was limited in terms of diseases of mercury, and the techniques for analyzing these very small concentrations of mercury in the human diet were also uh, not well developed and not particularly sensitive. So again, to determine cause and effect, you have to make that linkage. It took a significant amount of time, over a decade, to make that linkage. The conclusions came out in 1968 when the Japanese uh, government actually, uh, from the research available and the, the knowledge available at that point in time, uh, confirmed in an official statement acknowledging that Minamata disease is a disease of the central nervous system caused by a methylmercury compound, making that linkage to the manufacturing discharge of the Chiso Company and the Showa Senko Company, uh, which was upstream in the Agano River, the other location of Minamata disease. The two outbreaks that occurred uh, were on the western side of the Japanese mainland, uh, main island, uh, down in Minamata Bay um, is where the Chiso factory was. The other factory was upstream in the Agano River, um, and it was all along here that uh, people were experiencing some sort of uh, toxicosis related to the local food chain. Uh, it's estimated that some Minamata inhabitants ate uh, 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 food of about uh, 300 to 1,500 grams per day uh, with an average mer mercury concentration of 3 to 4 micrograms per gram. Uh, and this led to their mercury toxicosis. Uh, the fact that we had uh, uh, a localized food system in terms of local production, uh, catching of a lot of fish and shellfish uh, for the local markets occurred in the regional bays. The fishermen would go out in the uh, local harbors and the local uh, waters, offshore waters, and bring back somewhat local catches, and there was a cycling within the local community. In terms of the distribution of certified patients, you can kind of look at uh, the Agano River up here in the uh, bubble diagram here. These large pink uh, bubbles give you an idea that it was actually mostly in the larger cities here in the estuary of the river and also here in Minamata Bay in the city of Minamata. Again, a population sort of dose uh, response uh, uh, linkage here. In terms of the contamination levels in fish, uh, I have two graphics here from the Japan Ministry of the Environment. Um, on the top one from the Argano River Basin, you can see that uh, some of the fish uh, that uh, had uh, concentrations of total mercury uh, as high as six part per million in there. Um, in the Minamata Bay area, the average concentration uh, was four, although there's been observations at 16 uh, and nine part per million. So significant levels of mercury in local uh, fish stock. In terms of uh, the environmental pollution control that was uh, ordered uh, in terms of uh, source uh, abatement, there was a cessation of the process, uh, the catalyst uh, process using mercury. Uh, there was a control put on the industrial effluents uh, there was environmental restoration uh, over a period of uh, 10 or 15 years that removed the contaminated sediments from the river uh, basin and also from Minamata Bay. And there were restrictions in terms of local fishing and intake of fish or other seafoods from the contaminated areas. 
In terms of the clinical presentation of Minamata disease and the related syndromes, we find that there was a sensory disorder uh, in the distal portion of the four extremities. Uh, so uh, this is a neuropathy uh, uh, apparent in, in uh, your fingers and toes. There was cerebral ataxia, inability to walk, a lot of stumbling, uh, constriction of the visual field, uh, disorder of, the, of ocular movement, a uh, uh, central hearing impairments, and a disequilibrium, a generalized disequilibrium. In terms of the presentation of infant Minamata disease, uh, this had an intellectual disorder, and there was a various degrees of neurological uh, disorders uh, subsequent to ataxia. There were signs of symptoms of acquired Minamata disease, and acquired Minamata disease from being primarily children or adults that consumed large amounts of food, as opposed to infant Minamata disease, uh, which uh, was an infant and embryonic uh, exposure. One of the uh, signs uh, observed in typical Minamata disease patients was a musculature contracture of the fingers, uh, shown in this particular patient. Uh, this is typical of uh, many forms of neurological damage, including uh, spinal cord severing. This slide gives a, a fairly developed uh, and in-depth uh, neuropathology of uh, chronic occurrence of Minamata disease. I'm not going to go through this other than to say uh, that the, the presentation, the clinical presentation, was a degenerative process of uh, the neurons in terms of the number and the function, as well as the morphology of uh, the uh, brain matter uh, over a period of time following uh, the uh, period of dosing. So some of this actually happened uh, in terms of its occurrence years later following the dose interval uh, significantly earlier. In terms of congenital Minamata disease, this is uh, from pregnant women who ate uh, contaminated fish uh, products. And they themselves perhaps manifested mild or no symptoms, but they ended up giving birth to babies with severe developmental disabilities. These included cerebral palsy, uh, retardation, and seizures. This particular outcome, called congenital Minamata disease, was first uh, time that it, the sensitivity of the developing fetus uh, in, in terms of the neurotoxic potential of mercury and methylmercury compounds. Um, following the outbreaks, there were 22 cases of congenital Minamata disease. This is a second generation disease. Uh, the level of prenatal exposure was never ascertained because the individuals, uh, the parents, uh, the mother in this case, uh, was, uh, were never uh, really able to identify dose response in terms of their own disease. The diagnosis of Minamata disease uh, can be caused, uh, is confusing perhaps because uh, several of the uh, clinical uh, symptoms uh, can be uh, found in other disease diagnoses. Uh, so methylmercury is somewhat uh, broadly neurotoxic and has a uh, challenging range of symptoms in terms of classification. Uh, what they did in Japan was actually look at a rating scale of many of the clinical signs and symptoms associated with uh, known uh, progressive methylmercury disease. 
uh, as, as it was studied in some patients uh, that had very large-scale presentation of uh, clinical signs and symptoms and tried to relate it to others to validate and verify the scope of toxicosis over a substantial number of people, uh, well over 10,000. In terms of a uh, criteria for postnatal minimata disease, these are some of the symptoms in terms of the classification standard ABCD. Uh, some of the symptoms included sensory system disorders, ataxia, disequilibrium, constriction of the visual field, CNS, uh, ocular system disorders, uh, and various other symptoms. And this allowed for uh, the uh, diagnosis of whether or not this was Minamata disease or some of the other illnesses that might affect uh, the population. Some of these other diseases with similar presentation included polyneuritis of various origins, cerebral vascular disturbances, uh, cervical spondylosis, and psychogenic disorders of varying kinds. This chart uh, is pretty complex, but what it gives you an idea is the frequency of signs and symptoms. Um, these are 23 symptoms. I've uh, listed them down here. Again, I'm not going to go through this. This is for your own reading. But the idea in terms of the frequency of various types of signs and symptoms, this is 0 to 100% in the Minamata patients. For example, 1, 2, and 3 are constriction of the visual field. Uh, sensory disturbance and deep sensory disturbance, number four, ataxia. And so you can see that this pr pretty much covers uh, all of the patients associated with Minamata disease. In terms of treatment for methylmercury poisoning, there was no specific effective therapy for this disease. Uh, there are some uh, uh, chelating uh, reagents or uh, in, uh, medicines that are used. These typically are ones that we've talked about before in this course for heavy metal treatment, uh, things like penicillin, uh, EDTA complexes, to help speed the elimination. Uh, these are competitive chelators that help uh, enhance uh, uh, the elimination of mercury. In terms of the environmental response, the dredging of uh, Minamata Bay uh, involved about 70 to 150 tons of mercury-contaminated uh, materials uh, over the years uh, that the plant was in operation. Uh, these particular uh, materials were dredged up from the bay and actually deposited uh, on one of the outstretched uh, regions, uh, local regions, uh, to get it out of the aquatic ecosystem and into a terrestrial environment. Uh, then it can be actually stabilized and treated. In terms of the dredging of Minamata Bay, you can see the area of dredge in the, this is the whole of Minamata Bay. The area of dredge is the blue uh, uh, cropping here. Uh, the areas in terms of where the dredging uh, materials, the solids were deposited in terms of landfill, is in the green crosshatch area. This landfill area it was about uh, 500, 600,000 square meters. The dredged area was about 1.5 million square meters. So this was a significant uh, impact to the local uh, uh, ecology uh, in terms of environmental cleanup of a substantial amount of real estate. And to part of the response in terms of the Japanese to this incident is the development of new mercury standards. Uh, the mercury standards were based on uh, risk assessment that suggests uh, that the level at which neurological symptoms 
would appear in the most sensitive adults would be about three to seven micrograms uh, per kilogram uh, in, of average daily intake. A body burden uh, that would be 15 to 35 uh, milligrams per 50 kilogram body weight. Uh, total mercury concentrations in the blood of 20 to 50 micrograms per 100 uh, milliliters, or a hair concentration of 50 to 125 uh, micrograms per gram or part per million. Uh, part of the law was also to establish new discharge limits in terms of water concentrations. Uh, discharge limits are now at five parts per billion or 0 .005 milligrams per liter and no allowable uh, discharge or detection in the discharge of alkyl mercury compounds. In terms of how Japan has uh, treated the Minamata incident and its uh, experience in terms of mercury in the human food chain. In 1996, the 40th anniversary of the discovery of Minamata disease, uh, a memorial was actually uh, erected in the city of Minamata. Uh, the idea was to remember uh, the victims, uh, uh, the patients uh, uh, of the Minamata incident, and also to let this serve as a lesson uh, to future generations about responsible uh, treatment of the environment and the human food chain. What we have done as scientists is try to take the lessons uh, we have learned in terms of risk assessment of mercury. Uh, it's unfortunate uh, that we have to have uh, human disease uh, or human toxicosis to be able to develop some clear thresholds in terms of toxicosis. Uh, from clinical studies. Uh, this particular graphic gives an idea of the dose reconstruction in terms of the presentation of lethality uh, or toxicity associated with um, various levels of ingestion. Uh, the idea was uh, use that information to try to establish some of the dose response relationships for methylmercury and its accumulation in humans. What uh, has happened since that time is the various uh, international and national organizations have, have come uh, full circle to develop uh, regulatory standards or provisional tolerably weekly intakes uh, for uh, mercury and methylmercury in foodstuffs. If you remember the Joint FAO Expert Committee um, on Food Additives, JECFA, uh, uh, um, it recommended that any use of mercury that is increases the level of mercury in food should be strongly discouraged. It also recommended a provisional toler tolerable weekly intake of 0.3 milligrams of total mercury per person, of which no more than 0.2 milligrams should be present as methylmercury. And so this gives us a standard for comparison. Uh, the Ministry of Health and Welfare in Japan uh, was a little bit more conservative given their history. Uh, they set the tolerable intake for adults uh, weighing 50 kilograms as 0.25 uh, milligrams rather than 0.3, and of methylmercury as 0.17 milligrams. Now the follow-up to some of our learnings uh, ended uh, perhaps in uh, or continued in 1998 with two well-designed and well-executed cohort studies in the Seychelles 
and the Faroe Islands. Uh, these were child development studies of populations that consumed large quantities of seafood because of their island location. The uh, studies determined via food analysis what the prenatal methylmercury uh, exposure and they ascertained the neurodevelopment outcomes of the children following delivery and this is a, a multi-year follow-up. The exposure levels in the two populations, these are two independent studies. Um, the exposures were similar. The mean was uh, four part per million in uh, Firos and uh, six part per million in the Seychelles. The Seychelles study examined uh, their main cohort, which was 779 children, five times following birth at uh, six and a half, 19, 29, 66, and 107 months in terms of the neural, neurological development. The, the Ferrosi cohort was examined at seven years and again at 14 years. So a different sort of examination profile in these two studies. In terms of the findings, they were divergent. Uh, they were different in that 46 in the Seychelles studies, uh, the primary endpoints across five ages, only one of the endpoints showed a possible adverse association with prenatal methylmercury exposure. Uh, in the Faroes, uh, it reported adverse association between prenatal methylmercury exposure and tests of memory, attention, language, and visual and spatial perception measured at seven years old. Uh, in some cases, the divergent test results uh, were actually uh, occurred on identical test measures. And so we had two independent studies with some divergence of findings. Uh, part of that uh, was, uh, had to do with, uh, in post-analysis, uh, an examination of other vectors of intoxication uh, dealing with uh, uh, large seafood uh, consumption, such as uh, organochlorine consumption and some of the neurotoxic effects of organochlorine. So these are some of the confounding associations in terms of a dietary study for methylmercury. The development of a methylmercury reference dose has been an area of debate over the past decade or so. Uh, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSDR, National Research Council, National Institutes of Environmental Health, uh, reviewed all of the available methylmercury studies. The US EPA recommended a reference dose lowering from what then was current uh, at 0.5 micrograms per kilogram body weight per day down to 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per day. The National Research Council uh, convened a study panel. They concurred with that EPA reference dose recommendation in the year 2000. The Seychelles data was discounted because no significant uh, adverse effects were reported. Uh, the Faroes group did report uh, there some PCBs and some whale meat that may have confounded mercury exposure. Uh, there are some questions about the NRC's conclusion in terms of uh, was available science used in the best way possible um, and what is the regulatory balance between the precautionary principle and limitations in terms of dietary restrictions on methylmercury. There are some significant challenges in the determination of various public policy issues associated with mercury in the human food chain. It's a potent neurotoxin with increased bioavailability uh, and therefore the government needs to be 
uh, involved in public health protection. Uh, the problem right now is one of what the number should be in terms of managing the risk of methylmercury. There is a focus to try to limit mercury in vaccines from thimerosal. Uh, there's some concern about dental amalgams, although most research suggests that this concern is unfounded. And there is uh, still an ongoing concern uh, and precautionary uh, advice uh, relative to the consumption of some of the predatory fish species during pregnancy. There are some differences in the U.S. between agencies, uh, FDA, EPA, and the ATSDR, in terms of what we have as low-dose data quality in terms of the available research. Uh, there are some problems with fish consumption advisories, uh, problems if, uh, in that uh, sometimes they're just voluntary and people will eat what people will catch or what is available. Uh, there are also some public health concerns associated with vaccine safety. Uh, what's worse, a little bit of mercury or a contaminated vaccine in terms of uh, a microbial agent. Uh, one thing that is clear in terms of general agreement is that low-dose data needs to be developed, um, especially as uh, uh, a part of the uh, risk assessment process. In terms of our European counterparts, the European Food Safety Authority did have an opinion on mercury and methylmercury in food. Uh, they need, uh, they established in 2004 a significant study of concentrations and the European levels of mercury in food. There was a data request from six member states. They included France, Greece, Ireland, the Netherlands, Norway, and Portugal, all being uh, large uh, fish-eating coastal communities. There was a wide variation observed in the mercury-methylmercury concentrations in fish. Uh, the calculated mean concentration of total mercury uh, was 109 plus or minus 850 micrograms of mercury per kilogram of food. So a significant variability in mercury concentrations. Part of the problem was in the way they conducted the study, they homogenized uh, many different types of fish to look at total dietary uh, 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 exposure as kind of a first go at it, uh, referred to as European fish mash. Uh, there was perhaps a problem in terms of over or underestimating the differences in different countries, especially with regards to fresh fish consumption practices. Some communities, uh, some nationalities uh, uh, tend to uh, uh, eat uh, the larger uh, predatory fish, uh, while some, perhaps the Mediterranean, uh, have the smaller, uh, lower trophic level uh, food, uh, fish as food. In terms of the European Food Safety Authority analysis uh, results, uh, across the the countries participating in the study and the grams of fish per day consumed. Uh, you can see that uh, Portugal and Norway are the fish-eating uh, uh, states uh, in the European Union. Norway, I believe, is the largest exporter of uh, fish to the United States. Uh, in terms of the concentrations of the methylmercury in the food products, uh, in terms of m micrograms of methylmercury per kilogram body weight per week. The mean concentrations range from a high of 1.0 in Norway 
to a low of 0.1 in the Netherlands in terms of how the diet, uh, the, the concentration levels in the diet and the amount of fish that is consumed in the diet. Uh, the dietary exposure in terms of uh, mean dietary exposure was significant uh, for uh, both in the Norway uh, and for Greece in terms of fish consumption and fish consumption of uh, higher levels of uh, mercury. In terms of how uh, this data was incorporated into a risk characterization, uh, the uh, European Food Safety Authority uh, suggests that uh, the uh, intake levels uh, by this early analysis uh, is close to the provisional tolerable uh, weekly intake levels established by uh, JECFA, which is 1.6 micrograms per kilogram body weight per week, uh, and the acceptable intake value uh, by the U.S. National Research Council, which was 0.7. Uh, essentially, uh, their risk characterization suggests that high consumption of predatory fish uh, may exceed the, these tolerable intake levels and that uh, there is a uh, risk in terms of potential for neurotoxicosis of the unborn and young children uh, in terms of a subpopulation of consumers. Well, this uh, gives uh, us yet another uh, incidence of a, a toxicant in the human food chain, uh, this one uh, being more graphic in terms of the presentation of actual disease from uh, an intoxication, a very wide-scale intoxication episode in the 1950s in Japan. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, a student asked me uh, uh, previously about, you know, have we uh, evolved or had within human history had to go through all of these toxicoses to learn what practices, what food types, what hurts us, what helps us? And the answer to that is probably a, a very bold yes. All of this is a part of the human experience, uh, and uh, I would uh, suggest that there is an unfortunate side to that human experience, um, but if we were to cast this in the light of good fortune, we are the beneficiaries of uh, the generations that have preceded us in terms of managing the food system. With that, I thank you very much. We'll see you later.